Hey, welcome. This is Off Script with Liam Gibbler. We are back after taking a ton of time between our first episode. We uh, a lot of stuff happened. I ended up getting COVID. I was out for a few weeks. We had final stress. You know, it was hard to coordinate times and everything. So my bad for taking so long to figure this out. But uh, I'm happy we're here. I'm happy we're getting it done. Jeez, man. In my time out, I got to spend a lot of time with my family. You know, get used to staying in that house. Uh, we've only been living here since, I guess, last August. And I've been here even less than that because I've been in and out of uh, different cities, right? So, yeah, just really getting used to our environment. Um, something that happened really recently, probably the last six months or so, is we've actually had a gluten-free household. Because uh, my little brother got diagnosed with celiac. So now both my mom and my little brother have celiac. Uh, I got tested. I have a gluten sensitivity. My dad got tested. He's totally fine. He can just eat whatever he wants. Which I only bring up because uh, I am totally okay with it and not jealous. And anyway, we, uh, we live in a gluten-free household. And what that means is that not only can you not eat gluten in the house, but you can't bring anything that has gluten into the house. Like all our products, there's nothing with gluten in it. If, and this happened once, if my dad came home with like a sandwich, my mom would make him eat it outside, like in the car. Like that's how strict this is. We're like no gluten at all. And frankly, to be honest with you, it's starting to feel a little gluten intolerant. I don't know. I mean, maybe borderline grainist because like, imagine you bake a nice plate of cookies for someone, like a neighbor or, or a friend. You really work hard on it. You just, it's like a sweet housewarming gift. If you brought those to my family, we would decline. We would say, no, we don't, we don't take that kind here. Those things aren't welcome here. If we were in a restaurant, even if they had gluten-free food, if they used the same, like, fryer or oven or whatever, we wouldn't eat there. We're like, yeah, you know, gluten, gluten, gluten can be here because uh, the law says it can be here. But we don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want it near our table. My family's like, yeah, if, if they have to be in here, they should be in a, a specific fryer. You know, maybe that can be their section of the restaurant. How is that not gluten at all? You know what I'm saying? That feels a little grainous to me. That feels a little grainous. But me, I try to be, I'm learning to be a little more gluten sensitive. It's one of those things. I try to recognize the, uh, the history, the history of the turmoil and the pain that a GMO has faced, you know? I mean, guys, this is a crazy, this is a crazy stat looking into this. Um, did you know that a burger with gluten in it costs $3 less on average than its gluten-free counterpoint? In 2022, there's that much of a wage gap. Can you imagine that? Can you realize that? That's ridiculous. You know, I mean, who works harder than GMO? Be honest with me. Who works harder to feed those poor, helpless chickens in the cages and those poor, helpless pigs in the cages? I mean, no one else will do it, right? You know, I've been hearing this a lot lately to end factory farming. End factory farming. We're trying to take away their jobs, too. We're trying to take away jobs that were raised in America. You know, these are American raised grains, and we're taking them away. Try bringing any of that up at Thanksgiving. See what kind of reaction you get from taller people.
This episode is with Rennie Temple and Karen Kay. And oh my gosh, are they so special and talented and just great people to be around. I, uh, I saw their show back in the fall and just like the level. I mean, when I heard, like my mom suggested we go to the improv, like I had these ideas about what it was gonna be like. But when I got there, they were incredible. Like these are incredible performers and in January, getting to take their uh, their class, um, I learned so much, and you know they really took this mentorship role with me, and it um, it really inspired me to work on my characters and my voices, and to just look at what uh, comedy could be from that lens. It's just that's the kind of effect they have on people. They have this incredible year uh, career spanning several years. I mean, they were huge in the '70s and '80s with. Uh, War Babies, which is their first improv. They're doing Out of Thin Air now in Bend. They're just, yeah, all around great. And this is a, a really fun interview. This is part one where we talk about uh, just what improv is. And we start getting into that rich history of some of their roles they had in movies and shows as well. Hey, Karen, Rennie, welcome to the show. Hey, hey Leo. Nice, nice to, to be here. here. We love you. <laughs> we love the, and the place that we're in. It's yeah, really great. The sofa is fantastic. Right, yeah. so your parents let you use the closet like this. Huh? <laughs> we just had the chandelier put in. I mean, you guys feel good about that? Fantastic. Yeah. <gasps> it's, it's, it looks nice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Can you put it on All a important. dimmer, please? <laughs> on a dimmer? Yeah, just give me a second. I got to go get the switch. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Is that better? Yeah. So oh. Really nice place. Yeah. Actually, do you want to know something? Was well, actually next week we're installing an above-ground pool. Yeah, I've got Our contractors coming in. Cool. And yeah, you didn't amazing. invite us for that? Are you kidding? Was we I? have bathing suits in the trunk. Yeah, we're ready to go. You guys are, we're ready to go? I wasn't sure that'd be your kind of thing. I didn't know. Outdoor pools? Swimming? Outdoor pools? Yeah, I'm sure. You guys. We have photographs you won't believe. Yeah, yeah well, I should have thought with Waterworld, sorry. right? I'm sorry. I should've. That's a thinker. I should have thought of that. <laughs> All right. Here yeah. we go. No, it's, yeah, it's good. So what <laughs> it's really good to have you here. Are we on air now? Yeah, we are. We're we're all live right now. You see those red marks right there? That's us. Oh, I thought that was a flag. That's cool. No, sometimes I think it's my own heartbeat, but it's actually something else, you know? Uh, yeah, it doesn't um, look like in real good shape. Yeah, no, it's a little aggressive sometimes. No. Right. Oh my gosh, you know. So we're here. Yeah, yeah. we're here. Oh we're my right gosh. So I met you guys um, at the improv uh, group we, you guys did. Um, that didn't come out right. <laughs> so I I uh, first I saw you guys perform with Into Thin Air or out of shit. <laughs> out of thin air. I saw you guys perform with Out of Thin Air um, uh, three or four months ago, and right. then I reached out because I. 
I was like, I got to find a way to get to know these guys, and I ended up doing your workshop. Yeah, no, you did the workshop, and you were actually really good at the workshop. You were the best one. You were, oh, uh, thanks. Well, let's not go overboard, but well, it besides, was good. besides me, yeah, well, that's that's you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely no. the best guy. Improv for Life is uh, is my uh, is my improv teaching class that runs usually for about four weeks, and um, and. You were you just came in and you were the youngest guy actually that I've ever taught. Really? Yeah, and, and absolutely. Most most of the time I use I do grown ups. <laughs> you do you do adults. You do really. Yeah. Um, and it was exciting to have you in there because you were the youngest of a bunch of grown ups that went all the way from their mid thirties up to my age, which is and um, you're not twenty one. I'm not twenty one. No. And um, you fit in not only really well, but you led the class in some of the ways you interpreted improvisation, mm -hmm. and it was really nice to see. I think you were teacher's pet. Yeah, well, <laughs> you were also sure. my wife's pet. Yeah, I had a big crush on you. Oh, it was okay. embarrassing. It was embarrassing yeah. to me, Liam. <laughs> I'm serious. We used to drive home after the class. Isn't that Liam cute? Yeah. He's so nice and yeah. he's so funny. And with our daughter out of town, you know, we were thinking of adopting him. He <laughs> apparently has a good relationship with his family, which is so odd. You know, it's strange. Oh, my God. You know, I could try and sabotage it. I could try and, like, put it down. Really? It, yeah, I'd love to get into those adoption papers. Okay. What is it called? There's a thing where uh, kids can emancipate themselves. Emancipate. You That's can right. emancipate yourself. I yeah, think so. you're already emancipated, aren't you? Yeah. 18? How old are you? Uh, I'm about to turn 20. He's not that young. Wow, what a disappointment. Oh, okay, this, this, I'm embarrassed now. This interview's over. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I, really, I should have been upfront about that. <laughs> all right. Oh, you're much more grown up. Let, yeah, let, you know, let, let, let I'll try to think so. Okay. Little man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, no, it's so good to have you guys. I really enjoyed um, I loved that class so much. Actually, I'll tell you how much I look forward to it every week. Right. I would practice in... Anything, anything I was doing that day before I got there, like in the shower, in the car, I was doing all funny voices. You were, oh, you did, oh, that's right, you did voices you did. Yeah. like that. And you like to play dogs, I know. <laughs> I did that. do dogs. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, Bitches or men. <laughs> yeah. I've never been one to discriminate there, you know, no, I tried. No, discrimination. No, you're good. You, play, you played the rules and you learned the rules quickly of improv because most people think improv is just people making things up and actually they're rules. Yeah, uh, and you and you didn't fast. do a stand-up kind of thing, which was really good because I know you're good at stand-up, but you put that aside and then you did your own thing, which was improv, which yeah. was very yeah. nice. Well, thank you. You're done good. Yeah, it was uh, it was really an interesting experience because I did have my own preconceived notions. I'd done a little bit of improv in the past, but it was never anything as nearly as structured as what you guys did. Right. Um, what, and, what did you think you were getting into? Well, I guess I thought that. It really is improvised. You know, what you guys did really was on the spot. And coming in, even that first day, I had to get over the fact that I would come up with lines, right, in my head. Right, I remember that. That's and right. My, and I tried to challenge myself probably that second class on. I was like, whenever I had a line, I had to give up the exactly, idea. Exactly. Let it go. Just because it's like, it takes away from the fun of it. And, it, you know, you remove yourself from the experience when you're planning ahead. Absolutely. I found that to be true, too. Even though we've been doing improv for over 30 years in L.A. and New York and all of that, I find that if I'm thinking about a cool thing to do, uh, then I'm not really being present for the beginning of the scene. So, I agree. 
Yeah, improv is really, basically, learning improv is sort of learning how not to think. So the things just come out of your face, uh, totally unwashed by uh, all of the things that people have told you your entire life. So it's the opposite of mindfulness, it's mindlessness. Pretty much. Yeah, you know, okay, you, not spiritual, but improv-based. You have to learn how to trust yourself to open your mouth and magic occurs, uh, as long as you're playing by the rules of the games that you're playing. And uh, you you were funny about that, because you, you actually confessed. Well, I you know, I'm so used to doing stand-up, and as soon as this guy said something to me, I, I knew I had this funny line. And, uh, and you had to get rid of it because doing funny lines is not the purpose of improv. Oh, we fired many people from our group for doing that. Several. We love firing people. Not really their police fun. records. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but the, uh, the idea of you being able to create a character out of nothing and trusting that you can actually go with the flow is is a hard thing to learn sometimes. You also have to be able to trust the other person that you're doing the scene with, yeah. that you feel safe when you're standing up on the stage or in front of the class, that you feel safe that the other person is always going to commit to being a part of what your reality is if you speak first. As, as long as everybody is playing by the rules, everything works. Uh, it's when you start thinking you can make things up, you make things up that are funny that you run into difficulties. You have to play the reality of the scene, and from that, the humor comes. Have you right. ever done improv, Liam? Like, you know, on the street? Street improv? So, I, I know that was one of the assignments we actually had, was to, to go out and just try and do, um, not even think of it as a, a scene, but just go and make a conversation with somebody, maybe about something that you wouldn't normally talk to them about, mm -hmm. maybe talking to somebody you wouldn't normally. Right. And I will say that while it maybe didn't take as like um, much of a humor approach, right. I did notice that once we started doing those exercises, like just the amount of engagement I was having with people. Right. And um, I feel like my acquaintance and friend numbers went way up just from starting this well, random well, conversation. It's a, it's a communication skill. It's how you communicate with your fellow human beings. And when you learn how to listen and learn how to react spontaneously, different things happen you know, than what you're used to. You're used to the, the way your voice tells you, the voice in your head tells you how to react to things when you can get rid of that voice and just react naturally with the parts of you that uh, are internalized inside of you, uh, all of a sudden you discover who you are. Yeah, it's kind of like we all have a committee in our head that is saying, no, you never could succeed at that. No, you're too short <laughs> to do that. And we have to kind of get that out of our head. First, for many reasons, as a psychologist, I'm helpful to getting those things out of our head too. But it's pretty intense. Yeah. Well, I think uh, <laughs> it, it really is like removing these external parties, right? And, right. And they're all you, you know? Yes, they are. That's exactly right. You have been listening to me. <laughs> I've been trying, I've been trying to class. <laughs> you were that kid. Okay. Um, yeah. It, it, you are bits and pieces of lots of, of, lots of people mm -hmm. in your head. And when you sort of get them out of your head, all of a sudden you appear. And you do it spontaneously, you do it instinctively, 
And when you communicate that way, whether you're on stage or whether it's just your life, things happen that are different to you. Things change, and that's a good thing because if you don't change, you're not alive. You're, you're, you stay in one place. Right? Yeah. So that's what I try to teach. Yeah, and I think uh, it's really combating that um, desire to hack the system, right? Right, right. Which I definitely, I came in um, having my hacks, my ideas for how I would do it. I actually wrote down one line I had thought of. I said, my idea was, you know, you get the, the person, you get the place, you get whatever goes with it. Like, say I was... Um, a 50-year-old surgeon, right, right, in Tuscany, right? Right. My idea was, okay, I opened the scene by coming in and saying something like, damn, it's a good day to be a 50-year-old surgeon in Tuscany, yeah. right? Like, that's the, <laughs> that's the idea of coming in. And it works as a one-liner. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. it doesn't work as a scene. That's right. And that was what I had to learn. And as that was soon as you start telling jokes in a scene, the scene does. Right. You have to play the reality of the but scene. But you caught on really fast. Huh. I mean, you, I think within, like, two or three, Two or three or seven classes. Yeah, kind of got it. Thank God, we only had six, but I think he came for the seventh. But yeah, he was there. Nobody alone was there at the library. <laughs> that's the thing. I'm still working with it. I think um, that's still. I think you spoke to it earlier. The trust, having trust in another partner. Right. Um, that's probably my biggest growth area. Is that um, just because I've gotten so used to writing for myself and getting so used to trying to almost being afraid of not making jokes right mm. it's definitely it's a big it's a big trust and that's why I love your your name out that, of, out that, of dinner. thanks it's it's really not only are you trying to trust your partner that you're working on stage with but it's really trusting that you can you can act without actually thinking about it where you can be spontaneous and know that that actually works because that way you, you grow in leaps and bounds by listening and reacting appropriately. And most people are basically just listening to somebody talk and thinking of what they're going to say next, al right. already in advance, yeah. you know, waiting Which for the person sucks. to That's shut up. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, because you've got something that you want to say. You and can't you, do that do you, do you remember Freeze, don't you? From your class? Freeze. Oh, the, the game, game Freeze? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, th I thought that was no, a social it, reference that I was really about to drop on. <laughs> no, the difference is fine in here. But there's three people, and we're given a physical activity. So you've got to basically have an idea of what you're going to do. Let's say it's planting flowers. You have to know, whoops, did that no, it's happen? Okay. <laughs> I just I talk with my hands, so I hit the mic. You know. And so you do something physical, and then uh, the audience or the people in the class yell, freeze. And you have to create a scene on the physical positions that they've left you in when they yelled, freeze. And that pretty much encompasses the whole thing. The space work, all the stuff that we do. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. I really... I loved that game. I had so much fun with the different positions, but I almost I had to resist the urge to open a book every time I was leaning forward. Like I felt like it was always trying to read something. <laughs> I gotta remember that. That's a good one to steal. I'm gonna steal yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, as a matter of fact, there's actually humor in every time you're in a position, you, you open a book. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be funny. Yeah, yeah. It was just <laughs> no, because but. Especially when the environment of it is, uh, at least with your class, was of like learning. It's like, all right, how can we, not only can we have a great time doing this, which of course we are, but how can we also improve and grow in our imagination, our creativity in this? 
And so I started feeling a little off when I'm like, okay, I've done three scenes where I'm like almost reading a book. Like I, I did, I did one as a Bible salesman, and then I was reading a brochure, and then I was giving a guy directions. So it was just like that's I need to maybe switch this up a little bit. I, I think that's actually a good idea. I mean, obviously, if an audience was coming back week after week to see you perform and said, "This guy's always reading books," I don't, you know. Well, what would happen if they yelled "freeze" and you were flossing your teeth? How could you make that? into reading a book? Well, you've got to remember that flossing your teeth is actually your fingers are holding something imaginary mm -hmm. in between your uh, in between your fingers. Because if you're if you've got something that's flossing your teeth, you don't actually have floss, you're improvising, you're doing space work that indicates you have floss. Well that could easily be the edge of a book. <laughs> that you can hold up in front of your face and start reading from. Yeah, the, that's a good point. The space between your two fingers. Oh, right. It changes from floss into paper. Well, I was just thinking, even just seeing you, the way, well, you can't see him holding it, but the way he was, the way he was holding it, I was thinking like a fortune cookie. Like, what if I put the fortune cookie? Right, 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 that's good. Something Absolutely. Like that? Yeah, okay. this could be a fortune cookie. Yeah. If you're holding floss between your fingers, imaginary floss, you could make that a fortune but cookie. But you have to include another person. Hey, look right. at my fortune cookie. <laughs> All right. There. Oh, I, you... I love fortune cookies. Right. 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 How about you, Mom? Yeah. 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 Hey, you just covered three people. There you go. We were at the Cascades Theater just in the past, and we're going to go sort of back and forth until we find lots of different theaters that we can work in. Because they're different. Depending on the space that you're in, it has a whole different uh, feeling. So we like doing both of those theaters. It was good. So working at the two different theaters, the Cascades Theater, which is like a Broadway house, you know, it, it has the same theater seats, and working at um, Open oh. Space, I, I know the name of open it, Open Space, honey, yes. Uh, is more like uh, there, there's cocktails on the table, and so you get a very different reaction from the audience, even though I think in the Cascades they get bombed during intermission and then come back, but there's nothing mm -hmm. like... Yes, at open, at open space you can get bombed while you're watching the show. Yeah, and we, we found that it, it brings out a whole different emphasis on how we're doing it. I'm kidding about the you know drinking part, but it's just, one is a nightclub you know venue and the other one is a theater venue, and we love going back and forth. It's really nice. Do the suggestions change much? Did you notice that? Uh, well, the dildo thing comes up like every week. Yeah, that doesn't seem to matter where you're going. No, uh, just apparently some audiences guy. just love to say, okay, well, what are they doing? He's got a dildo. You know, and we go, yeah, thank you, we're not yeah. doing that. Next. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's almost one of the things that kind of like stresses me out about the idea of performing live. It's just like um, with something like that where you're getting suggestions, just the um, potential for heckling, right? Well, or doesn't the, the, the difference really is is you're in control. This isn't a social. I mean, the way Out of Thin Air does uh, improv is it's a theatrical presentation of improvisational theater, and we are totally in control of what's going on. We don't get hecklers. First place we can bury hecklers, but we don't. You know, we get we can have some inter uh, interaction with the uh, with the audience. Yeah. That's fun. We do a lot. Yeah. We, and we tease them. I mean, we're the hecklers, if there's any hecklers involved. Yeah, basically, I tell them at the beginning of the show that we're actually pretty good at this, so they better give us good suggestions, because if uh, the show sucks, it's probably their fault. <laughs> right. You know, so I get that right out. <laughs> yeah, just get that I out say that right at the and beginning. Even, and even if they're giving us stuff that we're writing down, like changing theater styles, I don't know if you're familiar with 
with that yeah, one. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah, all the different styles of theater, television. It's really a fun, it's a fun thing to do. Um, we just basically say, right, and the person sitting in our group doesn't write it down, and we don't use it. You know, So we don't intimidate anybody to giving things. A lot of people who keep coming back have little pads because they've already decided what they're going to give <laughs> us, and they come back every week or every other yeah. week. So it's really cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, when people give us suggestions that are obviously inappropriate, you know, uh, I won't mention words on the air here, but when they say things that we're supposed to be doing on stage and it's offensive to the audience, we say, you got the wrong theater guy. Next suggestion, please. You know, just right. move them out of the way and, and all of a sudden, nobody's giving us dildo anymore. You know, you're not yeah. going to hear that for the rest of the evening. Right. Yeah. Uh, we'll miss that guy, but we had to yeah. have him killed. Yeah. <laughs> they have very good security at these theaters yeah. that we go to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you know about set pieces, right? About set pieces? Yeah. yeah that's so, just... so much fun. They came out of improvisations when we lived in New York mm -hmm. and then in, in Los Angeles. And they came out of that, but we don't ask the audience for anything. And they know that it's by the lighting and everything that it's from an improvisation that we've done that we think is worthy of doing a set piece around and it's, right. it's really nice I yeah doing it. i remember let's see you guys did two at the show i saw i think um there was the one about the the elderly i think oh old folks old, old folks right. yeah where they they keep forgetting and they can't hear each other and, right uh, yeah that, that, was that was the one that stuck out one. Yeah, yeah that was very intense very good and uh, playing old people, it was nothing for Rennie because he could just act the way he does. It's life. very easy. <laughs> but it was really fun. You know, we, we always go to playing younger, you know, because we think it's livelier. But in that piece, we realized that, you know, these people have to eat too. These are <laughs> lovely people. Yes, yeah, so most of the set pieces we do are, are obviously funny and designed to be funny. Some are silly, some are uh, more true to life. Uh, and some are kind of serious, where the, they become what we call thoughtful pieces. And uh, the audience just, you know, it, it just becomes different. You know, again, it's, it's doing theater, it's not doing a nightclub. It's doing theater and presenting ideas in such a way that it's, a, it, it's kind of adult. And they're giving us the ideas, so we're just making it up out of thin air, you might say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you come up with that one? Yeah, really. I, uh, I, so I, original. I actually explained uh, that it actually came from, in my class, I start off in the first couple of minutes saying that people improvise all the time. Your whole life you're improvising, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. There's no cue cards, there's no teleprompters. You're kind of making things up, and things come out of thin air into your mouth, and they go out of your mouth and back into the thin air since uh, you're finished with them, uh, never to be said the same way again. So the trick is, is to control the thin air. We do a piece called Terrorists, which is classical because in everybody's lifetime, they've had experiences with war and all of that stuff, of, of bombings and things like that. And we all speak, I don't know if you saw that one, we all speak the same time until we then go into, it's you, Jews, Arabs, Muslims, who don't understand and we're in purgatory. And it's a serious piece, but it's so funny. You know, there's some stuff that's funny, but we can do that piece 
for the rest of our lives, it will, it will always be applicable to the world that we live in. That right. piece was written about 30 years ago. Right. And it still works. Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because there's always going to be that finger, right? That we right. point the in-group, out-group, right. all that stuff. And when we were uh, thinking of na a name for our improv group originally in New York, we came up with War Babies because we also realized that there is nobody that hasn't been a war baby of some war that's happening. And I, it's regretful, but true. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, which, which I think is... Uh, Maybe a little more of a somber segue into it, but uh, it's still a su super impactful uh, time of you guys' lives is when you start War Babies, right? That's the late 70s? Uh, yeah, in the uh, mid-70s. Yeah, mid mid-70s. Mid yeah. uh, it really came out of uh, an improv workshop where, we, where, where I walked into. I was there a little bit ahead of when Karen uh, joined us. Because I was just getting born. Yeah, she was. <laughs> she was thinking of 12. Um, we, uh, it was just a workshop where somebody read the, uh, the book of Viola Spolin, who created uh, Improvs for the Theater. And we just did them in, our, in the living room. And after about six weeks, she said, well, you know, I'm done. You know, I don't know anything more about this, so goodbye. <laughs> and we said, well, we kind of like this. So we started rotating in each other's living rooms. Uh, in New York and started writing pieces and then one of us knew a friend who ran a workshop I was ran a coffee house the focus. Uh, the focus coffee house down on 74th and Amsterdam in New York and they said well why don't we try to put this on stage and we put it on stage and some of the some of the viola spolen uh, games worked and some of them didn't and we would just you know move them and and all of a sudden we had an audience of people coming and like famous people coming into this stupid little workshop, uh, theater. A, a theater, excuse me, uh, coffee house. Don't to, don't to, drop. To, don't say mean, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Robin, don't. Robin Williams. Don't say, say what, and no. Christopher I, I, Reeve. I, I think that. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's tooting yeah. your own horn. Too I much. guess. Uh, <laughs> toot toot. And uh, you know, people would come in, and as Karen said, would come in with pieces of paper to give us. Suggestions that they had been thinking about during the week. It was it was really uh, good times. And also, we were pretty much the only people on the planet who thought knew that Jane Fonda was actually funny in comedies because she wasn't seen as a. Now she's famous for doing um, whatever that show is with Grace and Frankie. How did you segue into Jane Fonda? You, because you were dropping I'm names. Dropping about... a name. Oh, okay. And also right. nobody. Okay. You know, they, they all thought of her as super serious. But we were we did a, a show with her, and you know, she was shy because she wasn't used to doing that. But she was great, and now she's doing a comedy. So. Yeah. So we taught Jane Fonda everything she everything knows. Everything she knows. Pretty much. <laughs> Thank God that father got out of the way. Oh, Henry. <laughs> oh, Henry. <laughs> no, it was. Um, it's interesting when I um, I've been watching like classic episodes of like uh, Johnny Carson, right? right? Yeah, and uh, which speaking of Karen had an appearance on Johnny Carson, which uh, we can we could even get into right now. Actually, that up now that okay. brought it up. No, you go ahead. But well, I hear the Johnny Carson story. On that coffee cup, that, there was alcohol in there. 
just not right now. <laughs> He's Johnny's coffee cup. Johnny's coffee cup. Yeah. yeah, you could light a fire in the theater. Really? <laughs> but that was really fun. I, I was promoting a show, I don't know, called Blansky's Beauties, which was Gary Marshall. And I was determined to be not that character that I was playing. Now, Johnny, on the other hand, wanted me to just play, you know, a dumb blonde kind of thing. Uh, and I was determined not to, and I really had to gear my way through because that's what he was expecting. And that was, I wasn't going to do that on The Tonight Show. I wanted to appear to be more like I really was than the character that I was playing as a Las Vegas, you know. <laughs> it was really interesting. There's this, like, switch that I could see. They have it, like, set up by decades, right? So the, um, the episodes, I was watching on Pluto TV, and they have the, like, um, comic legends of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, right? And there's this weird switch that some, happens sometime in the 70s and 80s. Before that, even when women are funny, the audience isn't laughing. Mm, it's, like, this strange thing that, like, 60s and 50s, I was seeing, like, making the same jokes the guys were making, right? And there's just this Take dead silence. Take my please. Yeah, like it was that, so strange. Yeah. And then so you hit somewhere around 75, and then collectively the audience is like, I guess women can be funny. I guess, well, you know, some, that's so well, some of that, is, well, actually, a lot of that is Mary Tyler Moore, uh, who, when she got her own show, all of a sudden set the world on fire. And then there was a Marlo lot of Thomas, all too. Marlo Thomas, uh, all of those uh, shows that Norman Lear did, which included Maud and uh, also Go uh, Golden Girls. Oh, no, that was, uh, what's his face? Wit. Thomas. Uh, Wit Thomas, right. Uh, when those shows hit, I mean, all of a sudden women were, as they always have been, really fun, funny. You are. Excuse me? Yeah. Fun? Yeah, they were rather fun, too. <laughs> and I'm not going to let you wear those earpods to bed anymore. You know, but, but there were the, you know, the Gracie Allens, and of course, Betty White has mm -hmm. been with us for centuries. Uh, started off with The Life of Elizabeth. She was one of the first, you know, before I Love Lucy, there was Life with Elizabeth, and it was her and her husband, you know, the TV husband. And it was really a funny woman's show, but it just never got the uh, the recognition that the uh, the Burns and Allen and all of those people. There's Gracie Allen, of course, which was great. So there yeah. were, there were a lot of women around, and they just weren't they weren't stand-ups, <laughs> for one thing. They were actors. Yeah. Hmm. It's really starting now that you're starting to see this um, um, this. Like explosion of women comics, right? Oh, the last like ten years. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean, before that, even um, now with like Netflix and mm -hmm. having becoming like I guess it switched over from HBO to Netflix being the big hub of stand-up these days. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But like I remember, even when they're starting their stand-up, right? It's these few guys, and now, like this year, you'll be you'll see like three, four women I've never heard of suddenly every right. every right. now and then. There's just this right. huge influx. And well, it's super usually, exciting. Um, when, when you're doing stand-up, a lot of people are just waiting, like Jerry Seinfeld, you know, waiting to be discovered, although he was fabulous way before he did the Seinfeld show. Uh, that's where you usually go. That's the pasture that you usually go into, which is then getting your own comedy show, like Ray, Raymond, <laughs> and all that, you know. And, and I think it's very helpful that we have so many different venues to work at as women, as comedians, as actors. I think it's really helpful. Remember high school? 
God, so long ago. Or it just happened. Or you're in it. Man, what a good time that was. Or is. Or wasn't. But you made it through. Because you are resilient. You're tough-skinned and unbothered by any comments meant to bring you down a peg. Heck, why even mention that Instagram interaction? You're over it. Doesn't bother you anymore. But say, hypothetically, you weren't, though. Say you were slightly perturbed by a comment left on a post you made by some random piece of shit who you're clearly more famous and successful than. And while being a reasonable fellow, and you are a reasonable fellow after all, you know murder is out of the question, right? Even if you just want to shake them, right? No ill intent, you just want to shake them a little bit. Just shake them and see what happens. You know, that's probably not the right legal option. So what do you do? What is just as effective at expressing your frustrations? Introducing enemy stickers for urinals. Have you ever thought, fuck this guy. I wish strangers would pee on a custom headshot of him with his full name and address. Well now, for a one-time payment of $39.99, you can't. The PISS organization, that is to say the Pelvic Institute for Satirical Stickers, We'll custom design a sticker for the enemy of your choice. Just leave an envelope with their name under the old sycamore tree and one of Piss's certified representatives will discover your enemy's location and draw a lifelike rendering. For 20 copies, mailed with free shipping to your door, what's not to love? Think of all the strangers who will see that person on the street and be like, hey, you're the urinal guy. They'll be like, guys, look, it's first name, last name who lives on Example Street. You deserve it. You deserve to live an undisturbed life knowing that they are paying the price for whatever stupid comment they made maybe two years ago every day. Thank you, Enemy Stickers for Urinals. I wish that we had, when War Babies was up, nobody was, at that time was believing that we were making things up. We actually did a pilot for NBC doing improv and the NBC guy said we can't do the show we said why not he said because nobody's gonna believe you're making it up so <laughs> it became sort of a strange uh, you know dichotomy we were having with what we were doing and what Second City was doing uh, thank God Lord Michaels put together Saturday Night Live where all of a sudden that type of comedy was getting out there where it could be weird, it could be raucous, it could be crazy. Still had to follow some TV rules, of course, but um, I mean, nobody, when Saturday Night first came on, nobody was doing that kind of comedy. Not a person. And it was all coming out of improv from Second City. Well, yeah, I think um, there's this quote that's kind of stuck with me um, from Jimmy Kimmel. He was talking about Saturday Night Live and he said, um, the three ways people make it are improv, radio, and stand-up. Mm -hmm. And it's primarily improv. And I just, yeah, so I've tried to immerse myself in all three just for my, raise my chances a little bit. <laughs> well, it's really interesting, which I say in my class, that Viola Spolin created improvisational theater games that were basically just for actors to work on, uh, you know, with, with a director just to kind of get out of their head. Uh, it was never to be on stage. Her son, Paul Sills, 
saw what mom was doing and said, you know, if we take mom's stuff and kind of twist it a little bit, we can actually put her games on stage and people will come and see that. And he created the Compass Players and then very quickly after that, Second City. And Second City has literally, and improvisation, has literally changed entertainment for the last 50 years. All of the whole cast of Saturday Night Live all came out of Second City or an improv company that followed after Second City. Uh, all the writers, all the movies that you see today, all the showrunners writing uh, television shows, they have all studied improv and it's completely changed the way comedy is looked at and created. It's really astounding. I mean, it's just such and a... I, and I stand by that, too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I sit by it right now. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> no, it's such a... I get wrapped up in that because I find it really astounding that a lot of people say, oh, improv, you're just making things up. No, you're not. You're actually playing by a number of rules that you put in your head, and once you know them, they start free-flowing ideas that, uh, that help you create characters, dialogue, uh, staging, all of that, and it comes from the oldest Spolin, <laughs> a director in Chicago, and her son, who took what mom had and just kind of switched a little bit. Was Viola Spolin a director she or was a teacher? A, she was a director. She was wow. a stage director mm -hmm. who said, let's try to loosen up actors and we'll have them do these little games and these little exercises, and it'll get them out of their head and they'll learn how to work together and they'll learn how to come up with ideas a little better. And Paul Sills looked at that and said, well, you know what, we can just kind of take that and put the games on stage. And he started Second City, and then the committee, and then Compass Players, and then we were actually doing it at the same time that Paul Sills was doing it about three years later. I remember distinctly that somebody came into the Focus Coffee House and watched War Babies and said, you guys are like Second City. And we said, who? <laughs> and he said, the group in Chicago, they're, they're doing this. They've been doing this for a couple of years. Had no idea. We thought we were making it all up. And Second City has gone on to become a school for people who want to go to. War Babies, War Babies was always what we decided to be, which was a theater company. And also we were very loyal to each other. There were people, producers, that would come in and want to grab two of us or three of us and leave the rest of the group alone, and we didn't do that. We just said, no, thank you. We work as a group. We're this, this committee of people, and we don't separate. Because we never would have lasted that long if we did that, and our loyalty was to each other. War Babies was always a home we could come back to after we did a television show, after we did a play, after we did a movie part. So we use War Babies as basically a place to just keep working all the time and then go out and do work separately. And we got to travel. Hmm. We, we yeah. went to different, we, we worked at Harvard uh, University for a little while and we, you know, we've been around the country with War Babies and not with this group yet, but we plan to get a really big van. So <laughs> Boy, the group's going to be really surprised. They're going to be excited. Yeah. Wow, don't tell them. <laughs> it was really interesting because when I was looking at um, just some of the things you guys are credited to, I'm in the 
mid to late 70s. I'm thinking that. I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, they're doing War Babies right now. And then I'll see three to four credits a year to your name. I'm like, oh, are you guys just flying mm-hmm. back and forth to do these? No, we live in California. Well, Once we got, we were working in, in uh, no, New York, and some of the Dick Clark people came and saw us and decided to hire us for a summer replacement show in California. So we all went, and you know we loved it there. And some of the people who just wanted to do theater stayed in New York, and others of us stayed in Los Angeles and uh, Hollywood. And we got agents, and we started doing television and films, and it was great. I mean, we had nothing to lose when we got there. I remember thinking, as an actor myself, that I have nothing to lose if I'm going to get pin- pigeonholed as something. I'm just going to say no. You know, I know we're supposed to say yes in improv, but as a woman <laughs> actor in Hollywood, I needed to say no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. So I know around the time, I do want to bring up a couple of you guys's, you know, big ones. You got you guys's. You guys. Okay, guys. is that not correct grammar? The plural of guys. I don't. You, you got to you got to understand is, is when I got all of my grammar from Nashville, Tennessee. So we got to <laughs> <laughs> take a little bit there. That's um, a good place. <laughs> um, well, one of the first things I wanted to touch on was uh, the Life and Times, which, I mean, that's I didn't I had no idea you went uh, you were on a sitcom for. At all, actually, but for that length, it was like 64 episodes, something like that? Well, Life and Times of Eddie Roberts, which was abbreviated to be later because it came on later, producers thought that was really clever (laughs) to call it the Life and Times of Eddie Roberts later, Um, was basically, it was a white-collar version of Mary Hartman, which was very popular at that time, where it came on every night at 11 o'clock. And it was supposed to be kind of like a sitcom, but it was a comedy version of a sitcom, and it did very, very well. Well, the same producers decided to to do a white-collar version, where instead of these people being mechanics and stuff like that, Mary Hartman uh, just being a housewife. uh, What? Just being a housewife? Well, that's the way they looked at it, not the way I look at it. Um, She, they created a, a college professor and you know, put him up into the ivory towers. And it, what we did, but the reason why there were 60 some odd shows is we shot five a week. It didn't last past 12 weeks. <laughs> they started us at 11 o'clock and then after about two or three weeks, the ratings kind of dropped off and pretty soon it was coming on at two o'clock in the morning and then three o'clock in the morning and four o'clock. And it, it died a rather quick and semi-painful death. Uh, but the exercise of doing a half-hour sitcom, basically, uh, what, every day was really interesting because you and had to know your stuff really fast. And a lot of the war babies were in it. Right. When we would, the producers had come to see us, and you know there were only a certain amount of characters that were in the script. But if there was anybody that they wanted to recast or cast, we just said, one of our group, just hire one of them. They'll do it. And it was very funny. It was fun to do. We it was great to do. Yeah, we didn't know that it was going to be a late <laughs> night or later. But well, one of the things I was listening to, uh, Anne Marcus. And she was talking about the show, yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, when she was talking about the problems that ended up hitting was that they had tried, um, I think, MASH reruns. It was around the same time as people were expecting to see MASH. 
Yeah, well, what they did is it's called warming up the time slot. They decided since, since we we're going to be coming on at 11, let's put on MASH uh, reruns at 11, and that people will start watching that channel at 11 o'clock every night, and then poof, Life and Times of Eddie Roberts shows up and we grab them. <laughs> yeah, not so much. <laughs> MASH was on for like 18 years, <laughs> and we were on for about 18 minutes. Um, but it was fun to do. A lot of really good actors worked on the worked on the piece. Uh, the writing was okay, but uh, it, well, it really was. It was. I, I always thought it was kind of okay, but it was um, it was a nice attempt, and it was a nice work experience in terms of every day you shot a half hour show. It was pretty amazing. You really did your research. Yeah, well, you know, I did. I, I had a. Heard, I haven't heard Ann Marcus's name in like twenty years. That's fantastic. <laughs> I had my uh, my frantic four hour late night. You know, just like <laughs> I was like, well, I got excited because I um, I went into this. I had I hadn't known about the the depths and the the amount amount of roles you guys have been in. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I got excited going down that rabbit hole mm -hmm. and just seeing all these different things. And then one thing led to another, and I was like listening to Ann Marcus on some interview. <laughs> did you um, you know that I did? It's your move. You know about that? Show, I right? I don't know if that I don't know if I'm I might have missed this your move. Well, let's really? get out of here. No, <laughs> this kid is That was the last word. series that um, I did. Uh, it was with Jason Bateman. Oh, yeah, yes, she was I Jason did. Bateman's I remember seeing mother. that. That's right. It was when he was a kid. Yeah. Right. I did. I just and didn't he know the name. Great. He was great. He was he's really he's good. <laughs> he's always great. It was really fun to play his mom. A twelve-year-old kid was really great. It's kind of like Phil Silvers. Do you know who that is at all? I don't yeah. know Phil Silvers. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again we have a gen. A, a, Generation Gender, gap. I was going to say gender gap. Yeah. <laughs> Generation gap. Well, maybe not. Have you seen the dressing room? <laughs> <work? laughs> okay. It's the high heels. Yeah, that's just the, just the light I was going. Uh, no, that's that's super yeah, cool. Yeah, Jason, but he never calls anymore. No, he does. You think he'd call his mother calls once in a while? Me. He calls he you. Doesn't call you. Oh. Yeah. You talked to Jason, did you? Yeah, oh, after Ozark. Really? Uh, I'm lying. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. God, I, I was figuring, okay, well, she's having an affair with Jason Bateman. Let's, no, uh, no, 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 no. Let's put that on for some. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I guess. Let's see. I know around the. My chronology is. You can see how crazy my notes are. Um, uh, these, these are frantic ladies notes. and gentlemen. We're looking at his notes over here. He has a notebook. You think he knows improv? I don't think so. He's got everything written down. Right, right. This is all. <laughs> everything he said so far, he's written it off a sheet. That's that's it. I'm a complete fraud. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> what are you gonna say? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sure, okay. Sure. Oh, I don't know. I'm just looking. I'm trying. I, what I was saying is, I'm not full. I think it, I think it is improv because I have no idea. I just have like I'll have a sentence here. It'll say um. Uh, my Tudor, right, 1983. And that's what I know about My Tudor from 1983. Good. I, figure I it out, want yeah. you to watch it. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, it. We'll, we'll fit, we won't bring up My Tudor. <laughs> no, it was a very popular movie. It was done during the um, director and uh, writer strike. Yeah. Hmm. So we got some really good actors who none of us could work, but we could do non-union. Hmm. And uh, the guy, uh, what's the name? Who, Kevin McCarthy? No, well, he was excellent. No, the one that played the student. Matt Latanzi. Yeah. We were next-door neighbors. He was in, married. In real in life. In real life. He was married to Olivia Newton-John. Uh, we lived up in Malibu in the hills. And after I auditioned with him, I get into my car as a grown-up, and he gets into this 
Porsche and we're on, you know, Pacific Coast Highway and he's I think he's following me <laughs> to my home. It turns out he just pushes a button, the gates open and he's our next door neighbor. <laughs> and of course Randy said, Oh, I need to get to know a living Newton John better. Yeah. Yeah. Well you guys yeah. on the set, I'll give Lip a call. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a fun movie to do. I'm still best friends with the woman that played my makeup artist and yeah. then followed me into uh, the master's program. And so we're still best friends. Oh, that's so cool. So really, well, anybody that sees you naked and puts makeup on you, you need to be best friends with. Well, right. That's, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a, there were definitely, um, I didn't see it. Let's but, uh, yeah, you, you don't need to see it. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just, I'm just throwing out but there. But it wasn't, you know, pornographic or anything. It was just about a, a kid who was really rich and couldn't pass French. And so he hired me and I became the French tutor. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There were definitely, there were a lot of, uh, I think I got that impression just from the amount of, a lot of people who uh, were commenting on your career were yeah. saying a My Tudor story. Yeah. Right? Well, there's, there's a certain stuff. age group, right? 50 year old men, roughly, that always go, oh yeah, My Tudor. Oh, <laughs> when boy. we first moved here to Bend, we were at the <laughs> Bend Film Festival, and these guys, you know, everybody's retired in their 50s who live in Bend, you know, they, they, they fired themselves from Facebook or whatever, and we walk into this room, <laughs> and people are drinking, and these guys, you know, in white tuxedo jackets would come up to me, and they would be red, ruby red, and I'm like, my tutor? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these little men turned into little boys. Little boys, and I know everything about their childhood. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. I don't know if I... I might have said this already, but um, my my favorite comment I saw of you guys was this guy on YouTube. He said... Um, it was a video talking about um, Karen's... Uh, uh, you know, just the movie she'd done. Mm -hmm. And this guy said, Oh, I remember her and seeing her husband in a lot of commercials. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and oh. it just like kind of spoke to the... I guess the times, right? Like you're, you're well, out there. Yeah, well, it was, it was it was strange. I mean, I, I I never actually thought of my. I always wanted to be an actor, but I always thought I was too ugly to be an actor, and that's about how much I knew about acting. Uh, and in that time, in the late early seventies, um, I mean, as a matter of fact, it came from the uh, improv workshop that we started learning. With the improv, there were a couple of actors whose faces I recognized from television commercials. And uh, they said, you want to do commercials? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about or how that's done. So they gave me some agents' names and they gave me some photographers' names. And I had headshots made and I started going out on auditions. And it took me uh, nine months to get my first commercial and then about three months to get my second commercial. And then I didn't stop working for well over a dozen years where I was just... I shot a lot of commercials, hundreds of commercials. Which he shows in the class. Yeah, yes. I'd like to see about seven of them. You remember that? Part? No, I do, I do, yeah. I remember. And, uh, do, you, do you know who Soupy Sales is? Soupy Sales? Yeah. I don't. Oh, you don't, okay. Then never mind, this joke wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. I'll get educated, you can tell it to me next time. Yeah. <laughs> that was part one of my talk with Rennie and Karen. Part two will come out one week from today. Offscript with William Gibbler is a broadside podcast. Special thanks to Lily Raff McCullough on funding and Tristan Hackbart with Sound Engineering. Thank you.